get started this morning. If you showed up today expecting to be going through the next chapter of the book, Forgive, you missed, um, you missed the memo, I guess. Um, we, we are back in this book, which I don't remember exactly when we started, so um, don't ask. But uh, we're back in this book from Kevin DeYoung called Taking God at His Word. This is chapter 7, so there's been six so far. There's one more to go after this in November. Um, so just a show of hands, how many of you guys have sat through at least one of those other um, lessons from this book so far this year? Yeah, maybe the one you did. So um, it's, I'll admit, it might not have been uh, the easiest to follow along with, considering the book is only that big, um, and it's rather large print. Um, it's a hundred and two hundred, hundred and something pages, hundred and hundred and less, hundred and twenty something pages. You can read it in about three hours. So we've taken a book you can read in about three hours, and we've stretched it out over a whole year, and hope that everybody can remember what we went through from week to week. If you're like me, I can barely remember what we went over in Sunday school last week from the current book we're reading. Um, so all that to be said, we're going to do a little bit of review. I think it will help at least get our minds back on what was the purpose of this book, and maybe it will spur you on if you haven't already to just go spend a couple of days reading this book it wouldn't take you all that long to get through the whole thing. I think it's worth reading. Um, kind of unfortunate that maybe we did it this way and it's, it's uh, lost a little bit of its uh, impactfulness. So um, we're going to do a little bit of recap. I'm going to try to do it as quickly as we can. Uh, I don't want to short the lesson for today, but I think if we don't do it, it's kind of like we're adding on to a book we don't remember what we're adding on to. So, chapter one was called Believing, Feeling, and Doing. Um, so, kind of the overview for this one, this chapter, um, is kind of a big picture of Psalm 119. Uh, it shows us uh, what we should uh, believe, feel, and do as we interact with God's uh, revelation to us in words, the Bible. The goal of, of this book uh, is that we would learn to love the psalm because it gives us voice to the song of my soul. And then DeYoung asks us uh, to consider our response to reading to the reading of Psalm 119, especially verses uh, 129 through 136. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives, gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way, way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I might keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Um, and so DeYoung is really driving it. What is our response to 
a psalm like this, Psalm 119, do we go, oh yeah, that's, that's how I feel about God's Word. That's how I feel about God's commandments. Um, and, and really um, driving home the point that our response should be yes, yes, and yes. Um, this is what you cry out when everything in Psalm 19, 119 rings true in your head and resonates in your heart. Uh, when the psalmist perfectly captures your passions, your affections, and your actions, or at least what you want your actions to be. Uh, this is when you think to yourself, I love this psalm because it, because it gives voice to the song of my soul. And the purpose of this book is to get us to fully, sincerely, and consistently embrace the third response, which is the yes, yes, yes. It goes over a few more responses that we may have, which may not be the correct response. Um, so, again, that's kind of the overview of how he starts uh, this book. starts with a, kind of a big focus on Psalm 119. Um, and he says, think of this chapter as the application in the remaining seven chapters of this book um, as the necessary building blocks so that the cl- conclusion of Psalm 119 are warranted. Or if I can use a more memorable metaphor, think of chapter 2 through 8 as seven different vials poured into a bubbling cauldron and this chapter as the catalytic um, as the catalytic result psalm 119 shows us what to believe about the word of god what to feel about the word of god and what to do with the word of god so chapter two something more sure so the overview statement for this one is Uh, God speaks saving truth to us in Scripture, the story of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and promised return is not a myth, but a historical, inerrant, written account which is powerful to save those who believe. The Apostle Peter gives two infallible evidences for the reliability of the gospel, the prophetic scriptures, and his own confirmation, uh, confirming eyewitness account of Jesus' transfiguration. We don't need any other saving word from God than Scripture itself. And so um, DeYoung says, uh, this is a quote from him on page 42, um, you don't need another special revelation from God outside the Bible. You can listen to the voice of God every day. Christ still speaks because the Spirit has already spoken. If you want to hear from God, go to the book that records only what he has said. Immerse yourself in the word of God you will not find anything more sure. So chapter 2 is called uh, God's Word is Enough. So the, this is the one on the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, sufficiency of, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture says that the words in the Bible are the only words we need to live a full and godly life as we wait for Jesus to return. God's word is clear enough, relevant enough, comprehensive enough, and powerful enough for every aspect of life. As the old hymn says, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to do than, oh, this one messed me up every time. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. It's a lot easier to sing that than it is to just read it. Uh, Scripture is enough because the work of Christ is enough. 
They stand or fall together. The Son's redemption and the Son's revelation must both be sufficient. And as such, there is nothing more to be done and nothing more to be known for our salvation and for our Christian walk than what we see and know about Christ and through Christ in His Spirit's book. That's from page 52. Chapter 4 was, God's Word is clear. The clarity or the perspicuity of God's Word is a precious and essential doctrine of Scripture. It is taught in Scripture itself and guards the gifts of language, human freedom, the character of God, and access to salvation in Christ for all kinds of people. Those who don't affirm this clarity will sacrifice either their freedom of conscience or their certainty of faith. So from page 68, the biblical doctrine of perspicuity can be abused, but a raft of bad interpretations and the sometimes free-for-all of Protestantism, Protestantism, however you say it, you know what I'm trying to say, is still worth the price of reading the Bible for ourselves according to our God-given and imperfect consciences. Freedom of religion, um, inquiry, and expression would not be possible without confidence in the clarity of Scripture. Not in the clarity of my words. <clears throat> Chapter 5 was God's Word is final. Um, all human inquiry, religion, and living depend on acknowledging uh, some final authority. Someone or something always has the last word for truth and life. Professing Christians in Western culture do not agree on what the that a final authority is. Catholics look to the sacred traditions. Liberal Christians to reason and experience. And evangelicals to scripture alone. This chapter presents a compelling argument for the supremacy and final authority of scripture. So from, uh, from page 78, whether we realize it or not, we all give some, someone or something the last word. Our parents, our culture, our community, our feelings, the government, uh, peer-reviewed journals, opinion polls, impressions, or a holy book. For Christians, this authority is the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And then chapter 6, God's Word is necessary. So every single person longs for purpose, happiness, acceptance, and glory. We want to hear a voice assuring us that we have what we long for. The only voice that can accomplish this is the voice of God. And He has spoken this necessary word in the Bible. Only by the Spirit speaking through the Scriptures can we become what we were meant to be and live joyfully forever with God. God's word is necessary for salvation and eternal life. The doctrine of necessity of Scripture reminds us of our predicament. The only the one we need to know um, most cannot be discovered on our own, and it assures us of a solution. This same ineffable one has made himself known. 
So that's a basic, very, very basic overview of what we've gone through so far in this book in the last 10-ish months or so. So um, if I, would, I would encourage everybody that, that still, if you haven't read this or haven't been reading along with it, I don't know how you would have continued to read along with it as you went. It would have been a long read. Um, it's not a long book. It takes about three, three and a half hours if you were to just read it all the way through. So it's worth going back and, and reading it. Um, definitely something that I think we should um, take to heart, but it's hard to take all of what's been said in Sunday school over this period of time and remember everything. So um, that's a very brief overview of the first six chapters. So this chapter, chapter 7, is the one we're going over today. Uh, it's called Christ's Unbreakable Bible. So the focus of today is on this question. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? <clears throat> so if you are a Christian, by definition, you ought to believe what Jesus teaches. He is the Son of God. He is our Savior and Lord. We must follow his example, obey his commands, and embrace whatever understanding of Scripture he taught and assumed. Surely this means we are wise to believe about the Scriptures whatever Jesus believed about the Scriptures. So this will not be a survey of how Jesus interpreted or fulfilled the Bible or even uh, what Jesus taught from the Bible. We are looking today at just what did Jesus believe about the Bible. Um, and DeYoung says there should be nothing controversial at all in affirming that Christ's doctrine of Scripture should be our doctrine of Scripture. So to do this, we're going to look at the four main passages that he takes us to in this chapter, um, and then um, kind of the, a brief survey of it to just gain some clarity on this question of what did Jesus believe about the Bible. So our first one is John 10, um, 35 through 36. So if you would turn with me to, to John 10, I'm actually going to read a little bit more than what's up on the screen. And go to 40 point font, you can only put so much on the screen. And I'm actually going to start reading in uh, verse 29. My, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, are be you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures can, cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? So this first passage... Um, it's kind of two, two different aspects of this uh, passage that we're going to look at. Um, so 
each one of these is going to kind of have a main point that we're driving to. So that main point I'll put up here in a second. Um, but in this, um, in this passage, um, so let's look back the verse 35, um, is really driving at the scripture cannot be broken. Um, but how Christ is pointing to that is he's actually referring back to Psalm 82, uh, verse 6. So DeYoung says here, Jesus isn't trying to prove his divinity from this curious reference in Psalm 82, um, which says, uh, Psalm 82, 6 says, I said, you are God's son of the most high, um, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Obviously, in that verse 6, he's using... God's little g, um, there's a reference to, there's a possibility he's trying to even, you know, you, you guys hold yourself in such high esteem, you see yourself as little gods um, in the in this way that the psalm is written. Um, he's trying to puncture the presentation of his adversaries. The, he's saying, you are so hung up on the word God, but right here in scriptures, there are men um, these men were called gods. You'll have to do better than to persecute me merely, <clears throat> merely because of a title. Um, here, Jesus is defending himself, and he's not making his point from the Torah or from some lofty passage in Isaiah. He's making his case from one word in an obscure psalm. And yet, he doesn't have to prove to anyone that Psalm 82 is authoritative. Authoritative. Uh, Jesus doesn't try to convince his opponents that Scripture cannot be broken. He merely asserts the tr that truth as a common ground they can all agree on. So for Jesus, anything from Scripture down to the individual word and to the least heralded passages possess unquestioned authority. So our main point number one, Jesus believes Scripture was the word of God, and as such, it would be gross impiety to think that any word spoken by God or committed to, write, uh, to writing by God might be an errant word, a wrong word, or a broken word. Any thoughts on that first point? Okay, our second, second passage is uh, Matthew 5. 17 through 19. I do have that one all up there. You can turn there if you want to. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the word relaxes here in Matthew is actually the same word which is, which is translated as breaks uh, in the previous John 10 passage. Um, and don't ask me to try to say any of those. Um, I tried to look up the, the kind of do my own little word study, and it's um, a lot more extensive than you would think to chase that one down. Um, 
but the word there breaks and or relaxes is the same is technically the same word in the Greek. Um, and the point is being made in a different way, maybe with a little bit more force here, that no one is allowed to set aside or to weaken um, even the least of God's commandments. Uh, Young also makes the point that when he is speaking of the commandments here, all of, all of the hearers would have understood him to be speaking of the whole of God's word and not just the Mosaic imperatives. And then a uh, fun fact for anyone that was like me that didn't know this, but an iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and a, and a dot in the Hebrew was a tiny graphical hook or marking that uh, distinguishes similar uh, Hebrew letters. So it's literally talking about little bitty uh, little bitty things. Um, that was a, that's your fun fact for the day, if you didn't already know that. So then here, the main point for this one, not the least little speck of Scripture has been abolished by Christ's coming. Fulfilled, yes, and understood more fully in light of, his, of this coming, but never broken, loosed, or relaxed. The one who does treat the Scripture that way deserves to be the least in the kingdom of heaven. We would be hard-pressed to find a more comprehensive confidence in scripture than Jesus expresses in this passage. So at this point, um, DeYoung makes the point that uh, you may be considering or maybe thinking in your head that uh, um, I'll just put it up here. Um, that there could be an objection to this. So doesn't Jesus sometimes argue that the Old Testament was wrong? Doesn't he actually correct the Scriptures on a few occasions? So he gives a couple of examples in the book. Um, the first one is uh, some may say that Jesus relaxed the requirements of the Sabbath, thus violating his own principle and tweaking Scripture to be less rigid but actually, Jesus appealed to Scripture, to the story of David and his men eating the bread of the presence, to show that the Pharisees were imposing standard which violated the teaching of Scripture. So that's from Mark 2, 23 through 28. And then the second uh, point he makes to combat this ob objection is um, some Christians maintain uh, that Jesus disagreed, <coughs> excuse me, that Jesus disagreed with the Mosaic allowance for divorce and considered the scriptures to be mistaken on this crucial point from Matthew 19, which we'll hit on a little bit later. It's actually one of our passages we're going to go to. Uh, but in reality, Jesus did not reject the command of Moses. He provided a better interpretation for it. Whereas the more liberal Jews were taking the Mosaic allowance to be a blank check um, for divorce, on almost any grounds, Jesus brought them back to the true meaning of the passage. So, any thoughts on those objections? Have you have you heard that from um, others that uh, 
that Jesus either disagreed with Scripture or he corrected the Old Testament or um, any of those things. Any, any thoughts there? Yeah, further explain, explaining, clarifying, um, which is important to us, right? Where, where he's clarifying or where he's explaining is uh, putting things into perspective, giving us new perspective, understanding what God actually meant um, and how it could have been completely misinterpreted before that. Not typical, so that objection seems may seem kind of strange, but um, good to at least know that it's there. <clears throat> so our third passage is uh, from Matthew twelve uh, thirty-eight through forty-two. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no one, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up, rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So if only Old Test if and if any Old Testament reference can be challenged, it is this one about Jonah. And yet Jesus speaks confidently about Jonah in the belly of the great fish, as if if he and all his hearers had no reservation about the historical accuracy of the story. So maybe Jesus meant nothing more than as Jonah than we would say. Uh, just as Luke or Obi-Wan, that's a Star Wars reference for all you Star Wars haters out there, um, perhaps Jonah is a fable and we were never meant to read it as history. This, this explanation sounds plausible except that it doesn't work giving the rest of Jesus' speech. If Jonah is only, only a literary reference, it's curious that in the same breath, Jesus mentions the Queen of Sheba, clearly a known historical figure. And as T.T. Peroni, I'm not for sure who that is, but somebody that is referenced in this, uh, quoted in this book, put it, commenting on the very real danger of Jesus, um, commenting on the very real danger Jesus considered his hearers to be in, and yet we are to suppose him to say that imaginary person who at the imaginary preaching of an, of an imaginary prophet repented in imagination 
shall rise up in that day and condemn the actual impenitence of his actual hearers. So that, that does make it somewhat more uh, comical when you read it that way or think of it that way. It's, uh, to look at it as all of, this, um, all of this fable leading up to an actual call to repentance from a people in that way. And so, his main point number three, uh, Jesus consistently treats biblical history as a straightforward record of facts. So, Matthew 19, starting in verse 4, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So this one may seem a little bit out of place with the other three passages referenced so far in this chapter. Um, but let us not miss Jesus' statement about Scripture and what he says. So, with, along with this one, let's look at Genesis 2.24, which is what's, um, what's quoted here. So Jesus is quoting, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, in that passage, um, in Genesis 2, especially 24, we read it, and maybe we're in the midst of this, there's God speaking. Who's speaking here? What's, what's, uh, who's, who's saying what in this? Um, this verse 24 is just part of the narrative, right? This isn't God saying something specific, God, you know, God said this. Um, It's a, it's just part of, here it's just part of the narrative. So, he's taking these, these words that are part of the narrative, and in Matthew 19, he's saying what? He's saying that God said those words, right? Which, yes, we agree with, yes, there's some, Everything's God's words, but he's specifically attributing them to God said. Well, he didn't say it in Genesis 2.24, but he's attributing it directly to God. So Jesus is not so subtly implying that what Scripture said, says God says. And it would have taken someone much smarter than me to make that point um, from this passage. I don't think I would have ever even noticed the difference of reading that Matthew 19 passage and going back to the reference in Genesis. And so, Jesus has no problem referencing human authors of Scripture like Moses, Isaiah, David, Daniel, but they stand in the background. They are the sub-authors working beneath the principal author of Scripture, namely, God himself. For Jesus, Scripture is powerful. 
decisive, and authoritative because it is nothing less than the voice of God. For Jesus, what Scripture says, God says. This is the essence of Jesus' doctrine of Scripture and the foundation for any right understanding of the Bible. So Jesus held Scripture in the highest possible esteem. In his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on the cross, he did what? That was a question, sorry. That wasn't a very good way of asking a question. What, is, what does Christ do? He quotes Scripture. His mission was to fulfill Scripture, and His teaching always upheld Scripture. So this is a long, rather long quote from DeYoung. I'm going to read. <coughs> So Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture, all of it. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, the authorial ascriptions as given the straightforward, fa straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the Scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and a final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict Scripture or to stand above Scripture. He believed that the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely that the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What Scripture says, God says, and what God said was recorded infallibly, infallibly in Scripture. So with that, if we go back to... Um, what we talked about at the beginning of what chapter one, what was what did what was the picture he gave us of this book, and what what's he trying to what's he trying to do with this book? Um, how do you feel that this chapter adds to that description of um, how he puts we should be viewing scripture? How do we view scripture now? And does this chapter in this book, uh, how does it lend itself to a bigger, better understanding of God's Word? And also, um, how does it produce a desire in us to want to know the Scriptures, search the Scriptures, and live our lives based on what God says in the Scriptures? Any thoughts? Yeah. And this isn't by any means, I mean, this could have, I was kind of surprised that this chapter only had four references in here, like that he didn't just, this could have been easily been a, a chapter that was ten times this long of just reference after reference of that, just uh, Christ pointing them back to the scriptures. 
Um, so this wasn't, these aren't the only four times, obviously. Um, and makes the points he's making, but maybe not even the most helpful altogether. So I think that there was plenty of other um, passages that we that he could have chased down in um, in this chapter to make this point uh, even more clear or just more comprehensive. But um, any other thoughts? How does how does a chapter like this of um, what did Jesus believe? Um, how does it continue to bolster our understanding of the perspicuity of Scripture? The Michael. Any other thoughts? Any? Um, I don't. I can't remember who else taught the other chapters from this book because it's been so long. But um, any other thoughts from those other any of those other chapters up to this point that have um, that we think are worthy of of continuing to remind ourselves of as we um, as we move into the last chapter of this, but as we're um, really just looking at this to survey. Um, should we, can we take God at his word? You know, I, th- I think the, the name of this book is, is good because it's, our focus is there. It's, it is taking God at his, at his word, every bit of it. Um, I think it's helpful that the way he did these, I mean, he's talking about sufficiency of scripture in chapter three. He's talking about perspicuity or clarity in chapter four. The authority of it in chapter five. Um, were there any other aspects of this book up to this point that would that are helpful to us in in producing that uh, that yes, yes, yes that he says when we listen to or we read Psalm one nineteen and go yes, that is how I feel about Scripture as well um, because I I was reminded of that going back through that Psalm again um, in chapter one of this book and just being kind of blown away at my own response to Psalm 119. I probably even missed the very first uh, one of these, so I was glad I got to go back and look at it. But um, do we love the Psalms? Do we love God's Word in the way that the writer of Psalm 119 loves God's Word? Do we search it the way he tells us to search it? Do we, do we trust it in the way that he tells us we should be trusting it? Um, and are there, are there things from this book that have brought out just, Hey, I'll, I'll remember this forever. I'm always looking for those. Uh, if there's anything in there that was really worthy of like teacher, and if not, then it's fine. But just wondered if there were any, any of those ahas or really helpful things. Well, if not. I finished much quicker than I expected to, and I apologize for that. Abolishing versus fulfilling. How are we distinguishing between something being abolished and something being fulfilled? They don't doesn't necessarily mean that they were abolished because of that. They were for a time. They were for a purpose. That is. That they're they're no longer. And it depends on your, I mean, somewhat of a 
dependence on your, your view of covenant theology in general, right? I mean, this is depends on where you land that you're going to you're going to bring other stuff from the Old Testament or you're not and what does the new covenant actually mean you know what what are we talking about when we're expressing the new covenant so not that I think that that's worth and that's not a that's not an abolishment of the mosaic covenant the Ten Commandments that's further clear And again, the further clarification of that, right? If you are trying to follow these individual laws, but missing that um, that murder is isn't just physical murder. That's not what he's talking. About. He's going after. He's chasing after much more. That, um, yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Yeah, but I like the the passage that you read, the part of Psalm 19 that you referenced, and again, going back to, is that how we feel about Scripture? Not just the command, we're not just talking about command, when he's talking about commandments, we're talking about the whole of God's Word. Do we feel that way about, about, the, about God's Word like Psalm 119 does? Do we, is, that, is that the way, is that the heart posture of, of us individually? rhetorical question but um thinking about that in a in a meaningful way is that really how we feel about it so with that any final thoughts thank you guys